0: As we come into 2 Samuel chapter 6, this is a very different time in Israel's history. Between then and now, Samuel, the great prophet of God, is dead. He has passed away. And we find that Saul, the one who, the king who had rejected God, and so therefore the king that God had rejected, goes into this battle with the Philistines in the last chapter of 1 Samuel. And Saul, as well as three of his sons, are all killed in this battle. A great loss for the nation of Israel. And that's how 1 Samuel ends. We're skipping a lot of these things because most of the end of 1 Samuel is about Saul's downfall. As he has rejected God, God has rejected him, and we see all of this come to a a terrible, disastrous conclusion in Saul's life. And so as we come into Second Samuel, we find David beginning to be accepted as the king of Israel. We find one after the next, we find David being uh, sought out by leaders of different areas. And David eventually becomes king over all of Israel. Now today, as we get into this um, topic, I've entitled this message, and I have like eight working titles this week as I was coming through, and I said, we're just going to go simple seeking God's presence seeking God's presence who in here would like to we all know let's let's pause first let's let's talk about this we all understand that God is everywhere right um we have a theological term for this omnipresent if you're not familiar with it It just means everywhere at once and so he is omnipresent but he is also more clearly known and seen at specific times can we acknowledge that this is what we do this is yes okay And so what we see here, as we look at it, when we talk about the presence of God today, yes, God is everywhere. But at the same time, there are sometimes, as we understand the presence of God, it's more of our acute awareness of who God is, what he is doing in our midst, how he is representing himself, how he is working and seeking out the ways that he is working and saying, how can I be a part of the work that he is doing? Because even as we dig into what's going on here, David um, and these other men that we're going to see in a few minutes, they can't cause the wind of God, if we want to use a metaphor here, they can't cause the wind of God to blow, but they have to choose what they are going to do in response. Will they keep the sails tied up and knotted, or are they going to unfurl them and allow God to move this nation of Israel in a direction that he has called them to? And so in Second Samuel chapter number 6, we're stepping into a group of people that are beginning to look for someone. But before we even dive in here with both feet, I need to set a little bit of a groundwork. So today, the question that I want to pose to you is this, and, and as I, we'll get there in just a second. As this question will go up on the screen, you're going to hear me say it. Do not take this question for granted. You with me? Don't just assume the answer, the Sunday school answer to this question. Sit here, reflect, because we're going to find a group of people today, three specific responses to the presence of God, that all of these individuals would have said, yes, I love the presence of God, but what we find is that the reality is actually most of them don't. And so the question that I want to pose to you this morning is this. How do you respond to God's presence? How do you respond to God's presence? As we enter into um, an understanding of what's going on, we have to first kind of rewind To have a history of what the Ark of the Covenant was and is, because today we're going to be looking at, if you see a a, a heading in your Bible, the Ark brought to Jerusalem is what mine says. Now this is not talking about Noah's Ark, okay, that would be quite an undertaking to bring Noah's Ark into the city of Jerusalem. Um, But what we see is there's a place called, or an object called the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was given by God, and the instructions were, and then the people assembled this Ark out of a very special kind of wood. They plated it and overlaid it with gold. This box would have been about three and a half feet long, about two and a half feet tall and wide. And on top of this box was an uh, object or a place called the mercy seat. Now, the mercy seat is the place it was God's throne. This is the place that was representing God's presence with his people. This is the place that the high priest would go in once a year, and they would go into the the Holy of Holies, and they would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on this mercy seat, representing a sacrifice that is brought in before God on behalf of all of the people. Does that sound somewhat familiar to us as Christians and followers of Jesus? Sacrifice before God on behalf of a sinful group of people. And so, what we have is we have this is all kind of unfolding and taking place. And then we see um, for years this is taking place and there's traveling with the Israelites, this Ark of the Covenant. On the top of this Ark, on the mercy seat, there are two cherubim, two angels with their wings stretched out into the front of it. But even on top of this mercy seat, and also, don't you love the name mercy seat? Isn't it beautiful? This is not the judgment seat of God. Now, there is a judgment seat that. We're not talking about today specifically, but man, when God says my presence is known among my people, that place is called the mercy seat. And then in that space, whereas often other false gods would have a representation or a likeness or an image that's placed on top there, we find on top of the mercy seat, there's nothing. Uh, There's a conspicuous absence of representation this emptiness on the top of the mercy seat and so what we find is this place is representing God's presence among his people but the problem is when we come to first samuel chapter 6 1 samuel chapter you stay in second samuel okay but backwards in first samuel the people stopped using the ark of god to worship the invisible god that was seated on it and chose instead to utilize God as their um, good luck charm. They begin to take the ark of God and they begin to bring it with them into battle. And God didn't command this. God's not saying, take the ark with me. It's going to represent my presence. No, they said, Hey, you know what? I noticed this thing. Every time we take the ark into battle, we win. So maybe we should take the ark more. The problem is, you know why they were winning? Because God was telling them to go into battle. And now they're waging war where God has not called them to wage war. And they're carrying this totem. And you know what? God will not be used as your genie or your plaything or your rabbit's foot or whatever. And so what we find is we find that God said, okay, if that's how we're going to play, that's how we're going to play. And we find this group of people now taking the ark into battle. And God removes his hand on these people. And the Philistines overtake the Israelite army and capture this ark. They don't want the ark for very long though, because after um, a short period of time, they put the ark within the temple of their gods. And all of a sudden, mysteriously, all of their gods are fallen over and broken and damaged and destroyed. And then the men of the uh, city begin to get tumors in mass um and they trace this all back to you know when this all started it all started when we brought that israelite relic into our place maybe we should get rid of it and so what these men do is they grab this ark they take a couple of um calves and these are um newly um new mother cows, if you will, they are dairy cows uh, that have recently given birth and they placed the ark on this cart behind these cows. And they said, okay, if this is from God, if this is their God wanting this back, we will send them in that direction. And these cows will go by themselves and they will take it back into Israel. God can direct them. If they, if this isn't him, then they'll just wander around or they'll go back where they belong. And that'll be our sign. And so these uh, Philistines now take these two oxen, strap them to the cart, and they say, Yeehaw, get on out of here, and they go. And all of a sudden, a man by the name of Joshua walks out into his field. Joshua is a Jewish man in southern Israel, and he walks out into his field and he sees shockingly the ark of God in the middle of his field. (laughs) Can you just imagine this? This is like, this is like if you were, um, I I can't, this is like as an American, the closest thing I can even come, and this just pales, would be like going into your library and finding an original copy of the Declaration of Independence. Like that, but like a hundredfold or millionfold or infinityfold, because this is God's thing, not just a national treasure. Okay? And so he's just stunned. Calls all the friends and the neighbors, they begin to, at first it becomes a thing, it's a place of worship, but then over time... It begins to evolve, and pretty quickly, it begins to evolve into a tourist attraction. Now it's a hey, come over here and see the Ark of the Covenant. If it had been today, it would have been big billboards, and people would have been selling jerky near it, and all kinds of weird stuff. And so they are making a mockery of this Ark of God being found here. And you know what? God doesn't care for that either. You know what happens? Seventy men of Israel die as a result of their making light of the presence of God here around this ark. We don't take the presence of God lightly. And so after this, Saul is King of Israel at the time still. And so they become um, anxious about all of this. And so the ark was moved to a place called Kiriath Jerem for you ready for this 20 years, AKA the rest of Saul's reign. They place it here, not in a major city, really the closest city. They close it off. It's not in Jerusalem. It is not with the tabernacle. It is not where it belongs, but they put it into the corner. Why? Because the people of Israel decided the presence of God was not worth pursuing. The people of Israel decided the presence of God was not worth pursuing. How do you respond to the presence of God? The presence of God is a fearful thing. It ought to be. And yet it's a comforting thing. It's a thing that as we chase after it, as we pursue it, as we seek it out, there are appropriate responses to it. But the problem is, is that God doesn't play by our rules. And so what we see is that they've now understood very clearly, initiated with the death of these men that the presence of God changes everything. The presence of God changes everything. Look at all the times in the scripture that men and women come face to face with the presence of God. No one walks into the presence of God and leaves the same. A few weeks ago, or a couple months ago, I guess, now we had uh, Seth Springs come, and he gave the illustration of walking in front of a semi-truck. Can you emerge from an encounter with a semi-truck going 55 plus miles an hour unchanged? Then why do we expect to walk into the presence of God and remain the same? And so the presence of God changes everything. But we're going to find three responses to God's presence here in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Watch this first of all. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from uh, Baal Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the Ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Abinadab is one of Saul's sons. He was killed in 1 Samuel chapter 31. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, so the grandsons of Saul, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And so they've gone now. David takes these men, get a new cart. You have these two men that are sons of King Saul that are going, and the people are even, what well, we even find this, in verse number five, David, and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. So, so far, things are sounding pretty good, right? Right? So far, things are sounding like up and up. Oh, they want the ark of God around. Oh, they want the presence of God around. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And this is where the story takes a very unfortunate turn from our perspective. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And so what we find now is we find this, this guy that we would look at and say, isn't he trying to like be helpful to God? And yet now he's struck down. David was afraid of the Lord. Actually, verse number eight skipped over this. David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And have you ever been angry with God? A couple of you, a couple honest folk, any of you ever ever been angry with God? God, I don't understand. God, why would you allow that? God, why would you do things this way? God, I'm, I'm so disappointed in you. And David has this initial visceral reaction. In verse number nine, this anger gave way to fear, and David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take of the Ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Really fascinating thing that's going on here. A Gittite is someone that's from Gath. A little Bible trivia really quickly. Does anyone Can anyone name someone from Gath? Goliath, the Philistine, was from Gath. Gath is a Philistine city. And so we find this man, Obed-Edom, a Philistine living in Israel, and David takes the Ark here. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Getzite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. So this was a Philistine that apparently worshipped the true God, not an unconverted Philistine, a Philistine that had adopted, um, that had followed and worshipped the God of Israel. But what we're really seeing here, let let me break this down for you, because there's some context needed. At the outset, we look and we say, God, why would you do that to someone who was trying to do good? God, why would, you, why would you allow your judgment, your wrath? Why would you get angry about people that are trying to help you? Wasn't Uzzah just trying to help? But what we actually find, we have to go all the way back to, and I'm not going to ask you to turn there for sake second time, but we're going to go all the way back to the first five books of the Old Testament, specifically now in the books of Leviticus and Numbers. Because what we actually find is God gives some very clear instructions to the Israelites. He says, as you make this ark, as you build this out, Here's how I want you to carry it. He said, number one, you cover it up. The ark of God is not your trophy. He said, before you do anything else, there's a a very very specific cloth, in fact. You're going to take this cloth down. It's one of the things hanging within the tabernacle, and you're going to take it down and Spread it over the ark. There's going to be a blue cloth that covers it up. And so, anytime you or I as an Israelite would have seen the Ark of the Covenant going with the people, it would have been covered with this blue cloth. The only people that actually saw the Ark of the Covenant were those priests who were to be taking it out of the Holy of Holies at the right time and the priests who would go in to offer sacrifices. You and I never are able to see and behold this Ark of the Covenant. He said very specifically when you move this ark, There are poles that ought to go through the rings that are mounted on this ark. Those poles are to be carried by priests. The priests were from a very specific tribe of Israel, the Levites. And then we see that no one is to touch this ark except the priests. And even then, only through those poles that they're carrying them by. And so he's very specific in all of this. But let's be real. That sounds like a hassle, doesn't it? That sounds like a lot of work. That sounds unfortunate. I mean, God, there have got to be easier ways for us to seek and represent your presence, right? That's what's going on here. See, David and these other men, as they say, let's move the Ark of the Covenant. Where did they learn to carry the Ark of the Covenant on a cart from? The Philistines. God didn't say to do it this way. The Philistines did it this way. And if you think about it, it makes sense, right? I mean, these oxen, these are beasts of burden, right? These things are, and they're dairy cows specifically, so not quite. But hey, you know what? It's easy, it's convenient, it rolls. Hey, if we were to engineer something to move the Ark of God on, we'd probably do the same thing. But God, uh, wait a second. Understand this with me, church. The church, the presence of God is not meant to be easy. It's not meant to be this thing that we just reach out and behold and grasp. The holiness of God is a significant, significant deal. And so whereas the ark was supposed to be covered, now Uzzah and Ohio, they're taking this and they're moving it uncovered. They're not carrying it by the poles. They're carrying it on a cart pulled by oxen. And they're even handling it. And the fact is, is that even Uzzah, even if they would have done everything else right, Uzzah, is not a Levite so, Nate. How do you know that? Well, his grandfather was Saul and we know very clearly that Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. Saul's not a priest. Who's is not a priest. He's not supposed to be doing any of this. And so God has these very clear instructions. And yeah, they've said, Hey, this seems a little bit easier. This seems a little bit more likely to get results. And the fact is, is that oftentimes We have liberty to use our wisdom and our discernment, but here we see a direct command of God that the people said, Hey, I think I have a better idea. Church, we have to be so careful not to let I think become more important than God says. We have to be so careful not to let our own thoughts and opinions and our own ways of doing things become more important than this is what God has done in our midst. And this is what God has said to do. And this is where God is pursuing. And so what we see is that they're looking out and they say, we want God, but they're not willing to actually do the things that necessitates the holiness, the righteousness, the burden that is the presence of God. And so they take the ark to Obed-Edom, this Philistine living in Israel, and God blesses him. Watch with me verse number 12. It was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And so he says, we're going to try this again. And it's not overly explicit, but watch some of the things that we see here in verse number 13. 13. When those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps. Has something changed? Has something changed? They're not throwing it on a cart like a piece of furniture. They're not treating it like the IKEA sofa that you purchased two months ago and threw in the back of the car and it was dented and dented. No. They're treating it with the respect that it deserves. And then what, what happens? They take six steps. So they begin this process and they're like, God, before we even complete this first seven steps here, they sacrifice an ox and a fatted animal and David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen uh, ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. And so we find this change now. We find that first time that David and Uzzah and Ohio, as they handled this ark, they behaved towards the presence of God pragmatically. But now we find an approach to the presence of God that was joyful. We don't see all of the details, but you know what we absolutely see? We absolutely see a desire to conform to what God has said they began to understand what they had done wrong in those months. Don't you think David had thought about that for months? Don't you think David, I mean, this is a few months time that it's with Obed-Edom. And don't you think that he, for these three months, is thinking, how are we going to get the ark of God back? And even as he, who knows how, if he went and studied the scriptures for himself or consulted with priests and Levites or how it went about. But sometime they came in and they made this change. They made this decision and they followed after what God had led them to do. Because you see, one of the beautiful things about David is that David was a humble man. One of the most incredible things about David is that David, every time God confronted him in his sin, we see eventual repentance. We're going to look in a couple of weeks and we're going to see some egregious sin of David. And we're even going to see that he doesn't repent very quickly. But when he's confronted by God with it, he says, okay, God, you don't need to change. I do. And so what we find here is we find that David, immediately what he does in this humility is he sacrifices. He says, God, we're trying to do this in a way that you desire. And then as they continue on, what does he do? He dances. He's joyful. He's encouraged by the things that God is doing. And even what does he put on? He puts on an ephod. This is a priestly garment. Um, It's not exclusive to the priesthood. You won't find a place in the scripture that forbids anyone else from wearing it. But it was inclusive to the priesthood. So if you were wearing it, you were intentionally associating yourself with the priesthood. It would be like you or me wearing a jersey from our favorite sports team. And so he says, hey, listen, I'm going to put on the ephod. I'm going to, God, we're doing this for you. We're seeking your presence in the middle of all of this. And you see what takes place here is that the return of the ark was not about David. The return of the ark wasn't about David. Couldn't David have just walked in front of them and put the crown on his head and the long flowing kingly robe and the scepter and the white horse and said, Hey, look at me, King David. I am the conquering hero. Shouldn't David have done that? Yeah, he absolutely had the resources for it. He had the place to be able to. He had the right to in so many ways. But David understood that this day was not about David at all. It was about the God that gave them that ark. It was about the presence of God being known within Israel. And so what we find is that the people, they rejoice in response to this. And watch in verse number 16. The ark of the Lord came into the city of David. Most of the time, just for clarity, if you're reading this and you go... Bethlehem, the only time that the city of David means Bethlehem is in Luke chapter number two. You go through the old Testament. This is referring to Jerusalem, the capital, the ruling city. So the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, McCall, the daughter of Saul, this is David's wife, but she's never called that here. Um, The daughter of Saul looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And how does she respond? She despised him in her heart. They brought in the ark of the Lord, set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. When David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat and a cake of raisins, each one. Then all the people departed each to his own house. And so what we see in the middle of all of this is they come into this. We see this feasting. We see this rejoicing. We even see this trusting. Because understand this. God worked when David obeyed. Isn't it incredible how that works? God worked when David obeyed. Just a few generations before, Israel had been in this season called the time of the judges. You read through the book of Judges in the Old Testament. That's where it gets its name. The judges were the leaders in Israel. God appointed. It was a theocracy. They did not have a king, but they had these judges that would step in as necessary and would help to enforce and dictate what God had already given the people of Israel. And so over and over and over again, the people, what we see, would disobey God. God would allow their enemies to enter. The people would cry out for help. God would raise up a judge. The people would repent. God would establish them. And then once they got comfortable, they would disobey Again, over and over and over and over and over again, the cycle presents itself. But what we see and what we're going to actually study this fall, beginning in September, we're going to jump into the book of Acts. I'm, I'm just thrilled for this. We're going to look at the early church and how they accomplished the mission that God had in front of them. But what we find is Acts is kind of like the anti-judges, because you know what happens over and over again in the book of Acts? God speaks, the people obey And the gospel multiplies. And then you know what happens after the gospel multiplies? God speaks, the people obey, the gospel multiplies. And then God speaks, the people obey, the gospel multiplies. Beautiful pattern that we see in this early church that was able to turn the world upside down. It's like the opposite of what we find in the book of Judges. But now we see that David here, he is not the one that's accomplishing the work. He's merely obeying. And God is working through him. Understand this with me. Your obedience to God is the evidence of your trust in God. Your obedience to God is the evidence of your trust in God. How often do we go to the scriptures and we see that they give us instructions and we say, you know what, that sounds really hard. How's that going to get the job done? How is that going to help us to accomplish anything? Can I tell you, it doesn't matter what you or I think. When God speaks, we obey. And your obedience to God is the evidence of your trust in God. If you're not willing to trust God enough to obey when he calls you to do something, can I say you ought to have serious concerns about the trust that you actually have in God. That ought to bother you. When God speaks and you said, I got to think about it. No, that's not submission to the Holy Spirit and the work that he is doing but our obedience to God is the evidence of our trust in God. And so we see two responses early on in this book. We find the pragmatic response, which if we're honest, we can look at and we can say, I get it. I get it. We see the joyful response. We understand that the joyful response takes saying, I don't get it, but God's in it. And so we're going. Then finally, what we see here is we see those have responded pragmatically, those have responded joyfully. And then finally, and this is, this is one of the saddest points in my mind. Uh, we'll get to a couple of others later. They're coming, trust me. But of David's story. Because we find that in the middle of his own home, there's one that chooses to respond to the presence of God judgmentally. Watch what takes place in verse number 20. David returned to bless his household. But Michal, how was she referred to again here? The daughter of Saul came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants. Female servants is one of the vulgar fellows, shamelessly uncovers himself. And so what does she do? She goes... Why are you behaving? This term vulgar here um, is not speaking of today how you or I would speak like vulgar language. It's being plain, abased. David, where are your kingly clothes? David, why aren't you standing up straight? David, why aren't you on one of your royal horses or in a carriage? Or why aren't you behaving like a king? And David said to McCall, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house. And notice here what he says. He says his house. He doesn't say above your house. He's not talking. He's not coming at McCall here, is he? She's a part of his house now. She has to be rejoicing in this. This is a good day for her. To appoint me prince over Israel and the people of the Lord. And at one time, by the way, let's remember, whose idea was this wedding? Well, Saul's, but uh, McCall was all for it. She said, yes. Oh, She loved David. And he said, Verse 21, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father, above all his house, to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, of those people, the abased people, the every man that you have talked about, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michal, once again, watch this, the daughter of Saul had no child to the day of her death. You see, McCall here at one time had loved David, but some things had changed within her. To the point where all of Israel ought to have been rejoicing with what God had done. They ought to be saying, yes, God is accomplishing what he set out to do. Now the ark of God, the presence of God is with his people. There's a king who desires to worship God. What a beautiful day this is. But McCall looks out and says, "Ah, David's not behaving like a king. David's not doing what he ought to be doing. And we see this bitterness begin to rise up within the heart of McCall. But we understand as we examine this. And I think that all of us, as we examine even our own hearts, and we can see the seasons of life that we have felt the same way, we understand bitterness often stems from unmet or unrealistic expectations. And here, McCall thought David should behave just like Saul. Why? Well, it's what she grew up with, right? This is how a king is supposed to act. That was her dad. My dad, Saul, was a king. It's how he behaved. But can we remember, how, what was God's view of Saul's behavior? What did God do in Saul's kingdom and kingship? He rejected Saul. And so now Michal says, you ought to behave more like my father. And, and David, what is, how does he respond? He, said, he says this, verse number, again, verse number 21. You ought to behave more like my dad. It was before the Lord who chose me above your father in his house. Why would I do that? She was hurtful towards David as she said these things and makes these accusations. But ultimately, I want you to understand this. Ultimately, I want you to understand this. This is sad within McCall's life. Her behavior was self-destructive. Her behavior was self-destructive. You see, McCall wanted the presence of God without obedience to God. McCall wanted things done the way that Saul had always done them and results to be different. But that's not how obedience to God works. I read this quote recently. I thought it was just thought-provoking. Kevin DeYoung, he's a pastor, wrote this. The man who attempts Christianity on his own, so in our own ways, through our own intelligence, our own understanding, shoots himself in the foot, Shoots his children in the leg and shoots his grandchildren in the heart. And what do we see from McCall? We see that her sinful behavior doesn't just affect McCall, right? How how does it actually affect? She doesn't even have a child to the day of her death. Her family picture, what God potentially had wanted to do. You see, in the middle of all of this, McCall could have been this vehicle for the joining of David and Saul's houses. And she could have, but no, instead she rejects and she allows her family lineage to really come to a very quick end. We're going to look in a couple weeks. There are only a couple members of Saul's household even around. But above trying to bring glory to God, McCall now, Hurts herself, And what many interpreters believe is taking place here when it says that she had no child to the day of her death, who's her husband? It's David. Many, as we read this, I think it's probably the most reasonable response based on what we see is that she separates herself from David. She says, I know you're my husband, I know you're my king, but I'm not going to live like it. And so she removes herself from David. But didn't she learn this pattern of behavior somewhere else? Who was she connected to in this passage? McCall, the daughter of Saul. What we see is that McCall, this behavior is not original to McCall. Saul behaved this way. No wonder Saul's children behaved this way. And so we see even still, Saul's been dead now for actually, by the time we get to this story, Saul's been dead for years. We skipped years. And his sin is still affecting the people that are coming behind him. And now McCall has allowed these things to rob her of the joy of the presence of God. As we examine our own selves this morning, I'm reminded of the words of Solomon. Solomon is one of the sons of King David, obviously not through Michal. And Solomon became king after David. Solomon is known as the wisest man to ever have lived. Solomon wrote this in Proverbs 14. He says, the heart knows its own bitterness and no stranger shares its joy. The house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. And then he says this. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Do you think Saul made these decisions that he made that now his daughter is imitating? Do you think Saul made these decisions he's he's making saying, this is a really terrible idea? Do you think that? Did Saul go in there saying, hey, this is really dumb, but I'm doing it anyways. Saul thought he was making a wise decision. And then yet, what is Solomon right he says, the end It's ways of death. Understand this with me, church. You can have your way or God's presence, but you can't have both. You can't have both. When we insist on our way, we're telling God that he doesn't get his. When we insist on our own abilities and our own thoughts and our own righteousness, we're saying, God You don't need to be involved in this conversation. And so you can have your way or you can have God's presence, but you have to pick between the two. And I want you to understand this with me. Second Samuel chapter number seven. This happens just right after all of this. The next thing recorded is this beautiful time. That's God's covenant with David. God makes this promise with David. David had this desire to build the house of the Lord. He said, God, we finally brought your ark back in your presence, but your presence is situated in a tent. God, we can do better than a tent. And God, I told you early on, God never speaks directly to David, but he consistently speaks through other individuals. And in this situation, he's speaking through a prophet by the name of Nathan. And he says this, the word of the Lord comes to Nathan, verse number four of chapter seven. Skip down to verse number 11 with me. I want you to see this. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. So David has sought to make a house for God, and God says, You're not going to. In fact, what we're going to see that fulfilled in is in Solomon. Solomon, the son of David, is going to be the one that builds the house of God. But he says, oh, God, I want to make you a house. And God says, David, that's cute. I'm going to make you a house. But not a house made with hands. But watch this. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them. I will plant them, he writes. Establish. Make them known, this is verse number 10, so that they may dwell in their own place, be disturbed no more. Violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he continues, he says, he shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of His kingdom forever. You see, even as He makes this promise, as He speaks this, He says, "I'm going to make Him a king forever." Did Solomon live forever? It's an easy question, not a trick question. So you like, I, I, "I don't know." Uh, no, but you know who came from Solomon, the King of all kings. The Lord of all lords. You know who came from David's house? The true and better and greater son of David, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And even as Jesus came, Jesus establishes himself, not in a way that we would assume. Isn't that incredible? He doesn't come and he doesn't ride in on the white horse into Jerusalem and say, I am the son of David that you've been waiting for. All of you submit to my rule and my authority. And yet he approaches the city of Jerusalem in his final days on on a mule. As he is led eventually to the cross to be crucified. Not because he had done anything wrong. But because this was God establishing a kingdom that goes far beyond a few square miles in the Middle East. This is God establishing a kingdom without an end, a kingdom that will continue to endure even after the things of this world are burned up and gone. They will continue through Jesus Christ. Because understand this with me. Immediately after David responds to God's presence in the form of this ark as represented by this item that God had instructed his people on, God makes this promise that goes so far beyond what David could have ever imagined. What we see now as David embraces and seeks the presence of God, Jesus is now being promised. Why? How do those connect? Jesus is the greatest expression of God's presence. You want to experience the presence of God? Seek Jesus. Jesus. We don't just seek experiences or ways of doing things or or even church services. These are only beneficial as much as they do what? Pull us towards Jesus. And so when we gather, we don't gather to make much of ourselves or to make much of anything except the name of our Savior, the one whose kingdom is established and will have no end. And so I have to ask the same question that we asked at the very beginning today. How do you respond to God's presence? How do you respond to God's presence? See, understand, God's presence, it's not always comfortable. It's not always convenient. In fact, oftentimes it's not. Because God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are above our thoughts. God doesn't lower himself to you and to me, or even owe us an explanation. And yet when God does these things, we are called and we are compelled to seek him more and more and more and more. We're called to seek God's presence, to pursue, to go after him. And so what we find today is we find multiple responses to the presence of God. Unfortunately, two of them are bad responses to the presence of God. But if you're anything like me, We're tempted into the pragmatism, maybe even tempted into the God. Why would you do that? When in reality, like David, we're called to respond joyfully to the work that God is doing in us.